You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, um, gosh, this is a, a, a day where our hearts are heavy as yet again people who were worshiping uh, were gunned down in New Zealand. Allison and I have a very close friend who is from Christchurch. He now lives in Australia. Um, you can imagine a lot of people in that part of the world are really hurting, as are we. It was a horrific attack, and we mourn the loss of life of any people who are senselessly killed. And that happens all the time in our world, not just in these kinds of instances, but when incidents but when these incidents happen we are reminded of how depraved men and women are and how often they do violence in the name of God in the name of their God next week when we come to talk about in John 3 men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil talk about the, the sharp divide between law and gospel in the word. And how often those who are very much committed to a law of some sort. Are driven to do things like uh, happened this week. So we're going to talk about darkness and light next Sunday. Um, by the way, Ricky Allison was saying... Ricky's heart was so much in that prayer. He prayed for the persecuted believers. Ricky has just returned from uh, a part of the world where he encountered many believers who were being persecuted. He was in Turkey for a week, but they were interacting with believers from a lot of countries in the Middle East where if they are sent back home, they're likely to be persecuted or even killed for their faith. And so... It's a great reminder for all of us that life is not everywhere like it is here. And so pray for our brothers and sisters who are in chains. Why do they in that underground church that Ricky said is thriving, why do they gather to worship? Why do we gather to worship? All of us gather to worship, first and foremost, to give praise and honor due our God. But then also we, we gather to learn about him. And to know how he wants us to relate with him. And how to relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And how to relate to those outside the body of Christ in the world. I'm going to be speaking to a whole lot more middle schoolers and high schoolers in the next session. But for, for, the, for the few that are here, as in Bella, I guess I'll talk to you. Uh, and this welcome to uh, the, um, uh, the, what is the, the uh, retirement age uh, group? That, that, that's, that's the one you're, you're in this morning. Um, I, I, why, why, do we, why do we gather to, to dig into the word? Look, in America, we like to take the word and say, one, two, three, this is what it says, this is what you're supposed to do. But the Bible's not written like that. Now, a lot of times it lends itself to that. 
But the Bible really isn't written like that. It's written in the Gospel of John. There are a lot of conversations that are given. And there's a great deal of subtlety and nuance in philosophical tones as theology is being discussed. The truth about God. And sometimes we just have to go there and follow with him. And it's going to be a delight, I hope for you, as much as it is for me, to just work through a lot of John chapter 3 today. Also, though, I want to encourage, and those of you who have children who are not in here, just encourage them to do this. My wife, uh, first wife Linda, uh, was a pastor's uh, kid, and her dad would preach, and he had a very extensive vocabulary, rather sophisticated guy. Uh, But uh, Linda would, in order to keep her interest when she was young, she would write down words that she didn't know, and she'd look them up when she got home. But also try to follow the train of thought of the, of the text. So I just want to encourage those of you who might find yourself in a position of saying, huh, grab on to something that you can grab on to and go with it. Um, so like, for instance, and adults, you might ha- have to answer this question as well. What if I were to use the word unabashed? Would you know what it means? Look it up. That's a great thing. Just write it down. And look it up and then think back to how it was used in that day. I see you adults writing out there. I see so. No, I'm just kidding. So what do you think was the most popular, is the most popular chapter in the Bible? Now you may think since we're in the Gospel of John and we've arrived at chapter 3. You might say, well, John chapter 3, of course. You wouldn't be far from many of the, uh, for, from the ranking in many of the lists that I I perused this week, some of which um, will put John 3 just behind Psalm 23 and 1 Corinthians 13. And in one list, they had John 3.16 as a whole chapter all itself. It was like number 3, and then John chapter 3 was somewhere between 8 and 10. Uh, The title of today's message is, The Son of Man Must Be Lifted Up. You may be a little surprised by this choice since verse 3 is so familiar. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now you have to know that I'm going to be tempted all day to preach like Billy Graham preached from John chapter 3. I wonder if John chapter 3 was as popular and familiar to to believers after or before Billy Graham preached than after he preached. A lot of you hardly know who Billy Graham was, but those of us who were older remember him very well. And over and over, he used these analogies that Jesus used with Nicodemus over and over in his preaching to the lost. And so many people came to Christ Because of the truth of the verses that we're going to be reading today. If there's any place in scripture that needs little introduction, it's John 3. So let's get to our text, which is John 3, verses 1 to 15. Verse 16 will be addressed next Sunday. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Someone said in our home group last week, I'm starting to get the connection that there's something about these signs. The way John has them ordered. Nicodemus says, all of these signs that you do, you have to come from God. Uh, So then Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Father, that is a great word. Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. Open our hearts wide and fill them. Encourage, convict, challenge, comfort. Give peace to our weary souls and hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. So why did... The Apostle John write his gospel. You will recall from the beginning of our time in the gospel of John. Where we looked at the end of the gospel in John chapter 20 verse 31. He gives a purpose statement. These signs, these signs are written or are recorded here. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life In his name. If John's gospel is intended to provoke belief in Jesus. Is there anywhere that better explains the process. Of how someone gets to the point of belief. Someone even who knows a great deal about scripture. But doesn't know the one to whom scripture is pointing. Like Nicodemus. What do you think of when you hear Nicodemus name? I mean do you think of. Uh, 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 of him as someone who is challenging Jesus, someone who really, he's a, he's a genuine seeker. He's only mentioned in John's gospel, but he's mentioned three times in John's gospel. Here in chapter 3, uh, there's a lot of interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus. Then again in chapter 7, and in John 19, 
about which point Nicodemus appears to be a believer, a follower of Christ. You would have thought early on that he was not a candidate for conversion. He's not going to say, I'm just giving up the law and all the things that I believe to this point, and I'm going to follow Jesus. He came to Jesus by night, and I suppose we could have uh, titled this message Nick at Night, but that's too easy, right? I really ought to be embarrassed by it. It's just so too easy. It could be, why, why did Nicodemus come at night? Now, I'd say probably conventional uh, wisdom, which is really conventional guessing, would say that Nicodemus didn't want to be caught talking with Jesus. So he kind of just snuck in and was having this conversation with the Lord. And you could say, though, equally possible is that Nicodemus wanted to have an extended conversation with Jesus. And all day long, just think about it. The crowds were around him. He was healing. Nicodemus says, you've done signs. Uh, so very likely, he, or it could be, I shouldn't say likely, it could be that Nicodemus just wanted to have this extended conversation with Jesus. Or it could be that John makes a big deal about darkness and light. So there is symbolism that aligns with this real-time event. We've already seen the light, darkness, and theme in John, and we're going to pick it up in a big way next week. The most likely point that John is making to his readers is that Nicodemus was in darkness when he came to Jesus. Now that really, if you understood the customs and the people of the day, you'd be saying like, what? Nicodemus in darkness? Everything about Nicodemus just shouted, righteous, right with God, light. Everything about Nicodemus is, is brightness. And you're saying he's in darkness? He was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a ruling council of the Jewish nation. Now, what happened just before we got to John chapter 3? Jesus cleared the temple. And you may think that Nicodemus would have been upset about that. But one of the things that a lot of people don't understand as they're reading through Scripture is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were very different people. The Sadducees were in charge of the temple. And so the Pharisees very likely thought, well, hey, yeah, it doesn't bother me too much. He cleared the temple. Those guys were making a mockery of the Lord's work anyway, so I'm kind of glad he did it. The temple was under the control of the Sadducees, who were the Democrats of the day, to the Pharisees, Republicans. That's kind of like it was. You just imagine the most far-right senator you can and the most far-left senator or congressperson that you can and let those two get together to oppose another individual. That's what was going on in Jesus' day. The Pharisees on the right, my right, this is your left, right? Pharisees on the right, the, Demo I mean, the Democrats, the Sadducees on the left. Look, I've said this several times. You should, this is just a way to help remember. The Sa Sadducees were very liberal theologically. They were all about politics. Look, they were in charge of the temple. Who was supposed to be in charge of the temple? The Levites. No, it was Sadducees, though, by this time, who were in charge of the temple. And they were constantly making deals with Rome. 
Um, one of the ways you distinguish Sadducees from Pharisees is that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought this life is all there is. There's no resurrection. So they were sad, you see. Pharisees were conservatives. Just remember, no resurrection, conservative resurrection. So Nicodemus is conservative. There's no way we can know for sure what the tenor of this conversation was. But we can speculate. We have sort of an idea about how it went back and forth. Uh, if you ask me, I think Nicodemus was indeed curious, but he didn't want to commit himself too much. All of his brothers in the, in the Pharisaical party believed that Jesus was an imposter and fraud. And from the earliest days, they knew that this man needs to be killed. Nicodemus began by acknowledging that Jesus had performed signs. Many signs in Jerusalem. Now, John has only recorded two signs so far. You remember what they were? Changing of the water into wine and the cleansing of the temple. But the cleansing of the temple was the only sign that he has recorded that happened in Jerusalem. But according to this verse, according to what Nicodemus reports... Jesus had been performing many signs in Jerusalem, probably healing people. And although he knew that all of his Pharisee brothers despised Jesus, he was curious. He's like, how can anybody do this and not have come from God? Even so, Nicodemus knew that the power Jesus exhibited, had some sort of divine touch on it, but he didn't want to overcommit himself. He was trying to protect himself, I'm, I'm guessing, from embarrassment, knowing that so many people outright rejected Jesus. Still, Nicodemus' curiosity drove him to have this conversation. So you would think Jesus would say something like, Nicodemus, I, it is so wonderful that you've reached this stage in your spiritual journey. Well, actually, no, I wouldn't expect Jesus to say anything like that. Jesus was not big on small talk. And so he almost ignores Nicodemus' question and gets right to the point. Truly, truly, which, which in Greek is amen, amen. <coughs> I say to you. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Greek in verse 3 can be, be translated in one of two ways. Born from above or born again. And in fact, it's translated <coughs> from above in every other instance when it's given in John, including the temple curtain, which was torn from top to bottom or from above from top to bottom, at the point of Jesus' death on the cross. The adverb, anothen, is a homonym in, in, in the Greek. And Nicodemus may have willfully, have intentionally, purposefully chosen the wrong meaning, meaning to gently mock Jesus. It would be like someone saying, if this company continues to ignore industry regulations, we're going to cite them for an offense. And someone saying, 
Oh, you're going to cite them for an offense. What are you going to do? Give them a pair of glasses? You know, so that they can see? Is that what you're talking about? So it's like it was this intentional mocking a little bit. Jesus said, unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, born again? How can you be born again? Once again, his response makes you ask, which is more ridiculous, the, the, the Jesus comment or the, or the person who is responding to Jesus? So, is there sarcasm in Nicodemus' uh, response? Oh, yeah, there is. But Jesus was not deterred. Twice in verses 3 and 7, he said, you must be born from above in order to be right with God. And he essentially said the same thing in verse 5. Uh, verse 5 is a verse that is often a, a, a subject of spirited theological debate. What does it mean in verse 5 to, to say that one is born of water and the Spirit? It's popular to assume that Jesus was referring to physical birth when, you talk, when he talked about water because we associate water with physical birth, right? My water broke is a signal for a man to engage his mind quickly, get the car, get, get out of here. So we think of physical birth associated with water, but the ancients did not associate water with physical birth. Rather, they associated blood, and we understand that too. Blood with physical birth. Others think that Jesus was incorporating baptism with the work of the Spirit. But it seems best, and, and you may say, huh, where does this come from? These are the connections that, that scholars in the first century made all the time. This would not have been unusual in fact, even though Jesus does not reference this text, if you look back to the Old Testament, there's one text that stands above all others that Jesus was likely referring to. And remember, almost everything Jesus said used an Old Testament passage to show how it was pointing to Jesus. So most likely, John 3, 5 is stated in connection with Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. <clears throat> Microsoft Word does not like that word, uncleannesses, but that there it is. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, Nicodemus would have said if Jesus had pointed directly to this text, he would have said, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I, I'm walking in the Lord's statutes and, and I'm careful to obey his rules. But notice that those good works come after the work of the spirit in a person's life. They don't bring about the work of the Spirit. They come as a result of the work of the Spirit. Nicodemus was confused because he, along with all the Pharisees, thought that the way to achieve salvation, which, again, when you understand the ways of God, you notice, you, you will understand how mutually exclusive these words are or, 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 or mutually 
unconnected these words are. Achieve salvation. But Nicodemus said, I am going to achieve salvation by the keeping the works by keeping the works of the law and the traditions of the father remember though from isaiah that we read this past year how often god's covenant people practiced the correct forms of religion but their works were not of faith and they were full of sin on the inside oftentimes that sin is the kind of stuff that we think about and a lot of times it's just a self-righteousness and arrogance that God points to as darkness. In fact, as we will see next week, all of us are born in and into a state of sin. And until we are born from above and believe into Jesus Christ, we are under the condemnation of the law and are subjects of God's wrath. So that's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus in verse 6. You cannot achieve salvation by the works of the law in your own strength. We are not made right with God by trying to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. And you hear that a lot, don't you? I want you to be the best version of yourself that you can be. And it sounds so good and there's a sense in which it's okay as long as it's understood of being the work of the Spirit, not just our own efforts in trying to please God. Think of the wind, God told Nicodemus. And think of it, even though we know so much more about wind and the patterns of weather in our day than Nicodemus would have understood in his own. It's a question worth asking those who are convinced that they can explain everything in natural terms. Is there anything you cannot explain? Are there coincidences that you cannot explain? Can you explain why the universe holds together uh, without being torn apart? Even if you can explain the science of how, can you explain why? It just is the way it is. It appears when we reach verse 9 that Nicodemus has lost his sarcasm entirely. And he's genuinely flummoxed. It's one of those good words, isn't it? Flummoxed. What he had understood so clearly had now been turned upside down. And it's Jesus' turn to gently mock and say in verse 10, Oh, come on, Nicodemus. You're, you're the teacher of... Israel, and you don't understand all this? You don't see the connection with Ezekiel 36? Verse 10 is not saying that Nicodemus was the leading teacher in Israel, but the article indicates that he was an important teacher in Israel, and yet he had missed the truth. In fact, truth was standing right before him and he was not yet, yet ready to believe or receive the truth. But then Jesus asked in verse 12, how can you understand? I mean, you refuse to accept plain language and so how can you hope to understand that which can only be understood <clears throat> with the help or at the direction of the Holy Spirit? Just imagine you see who Jesus is talking to. One of the brightest 
people of the day. A religious man. And he's genuinely confused. I don't get it. You know how it is when you explain the gospel to people and you tell them in the simplest terms that it's not by works of righteousness. It is by what Jesus did on the cross. And in repentance and faith, we're saved. And you say, so do you understand how to become a Christian? Oh, yes, you just do the best you can and hope everything works out all right. And this is intelligent. These are intelligent people that say these kinds of things. That's Nicodemus. He's just, I don't get it. I don't get it. Most people today, though, most people in Jesus' day didn't say, I don't get it. They said, you're wrong. You're wrong. And you're promoting something that is not good for the rest of the people. Verse 13 is a very important verse, although it is difficult to understand. And it's not much clearer in the Greek than it is in the English. It could be translated this way, though. Think about this. There is no one who is ascended to heaven, but there is one who is descended from heaven. No one can achieve salvation. We couldn't get to God, so God came to us. That's the meaning regardless of the exact translation. Why did Jesus come to earth? To show us a better way to live? I'll answer that question in two parts with part two coming next week. Why did Jesus come to earth? Part one, to die for our sins so that when we believe, we might have eternal life. Do you know what Jesus was referring to in verse 14? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In Numbers 21, when the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, they had gone in to the wilderness out of Egypt, and two years in, they came to a place where the Kadesh Barnea, and the Lord said, Go in. And attack the land and I'm going to give this land to you. And they said, oh no, there are giants. And the Lord said, okay, you refuse to go. You'll wander 40 years. So 38 years from that point. And all of you who are 20 years old and older will die because of your unbelief. Except for Joshua and Caleb. That's why we have so many Joshuas and Caleb's, I guess, around. But so they would sin. They had all kinds of ways that they rebelled against the Lord. A lot of licentiousness, a lot of authority questions. Um, and, and in Numbers 21, I, God sent, they were complaining. God sent snakes um, to bite them, and many of them died. I'm not sure. A lot of scholars think what they were complaining about was two services. I'm not sure about that, but it could be. Could be. No, they were complaining about the lack of variety of food that they had and also uh, just the harsh conditions of the wilderness. The people recognized when the snakes came in and, 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 and bit them that this was judgment from God. And so they went to Moses and confessed, we have sinned. Do something about this, please. So what was God's remedy? Uh, Numbers 21, beginning with verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent 
and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. It's implied that he lifted it up. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze servant and live. So think about this. Make a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and lift it up so that anyone who comes to look at the replica of the very source and cause of death will live. Do you think that this was just about the most ridiculous remedy that some people had ever heard? Really? Go to and look at that snake and live? You think some people died just because they thought, this is too stupid, I'm not going to do it. If you want to cut and try to suck the poison out, or if you want to give me some antidote, fine, herbs, whatever. But I'm to look at the pole with a snake on it, it didn't make any sense. When you think about it, bizarre barely begins to describe this remedy. Until Jesus, that is. Then in John 3, the gospel is beautifully presented over and over. And we come to the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Which informs our understanding of Jesus' death on the cross. As the bronze serpent represented the poison that was killing the people. Jesus represented our sin that was under God's judgment and was killing us no matter how good we look on the outside, keeping the law, following the traditions. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't run with the boys that do, girls that do, whatever, you know. I, I'm keeping up with that, so I'm good, right? And when we say, as the Israelites did, though, it's not about that I have sinned. Then we must turn our eyes to the sin bearer. And we will live. It is our only hope. You must be born again. When Jesus said that the Son of Man would be lifted up. Was he referring to Jesus' crucifixion? Or to the time when his ultimate exaltation over all creation will be apparent to everyone? Yes is the answer. It is more about crucifixion than it is about his return. If you think I'm bad for asking those kinds of questions, John is the king. So get ready. Just say yes. Just like, you know, kindergartners. Yes. Yes, Pastor Brad. Yes. Because John is going to do it over and over and again. He's the, he's the king of multiple meanings with his words. But that gives us a picture of God that is ever growing and expanding in our hearts and minds. God's glory was manifested more brightly than anywhere else at the cross. It is prominent now in Jesus who sits at the right hand of God. And it will be brilliant when Jesus returns for his bride. The church. 
I'm currently listening to a book on Audible titled A Gentleman in Moscow. Uh, if you want to know where I heard about this, it's always my son, Michael. He's the one who constantly keeps me reading and listening to stuff. He did a lot of reading on Russia and especially not only the czars from that day, but the Bolshevik Revolution this past year. Uh, this book is not Christian at all, so I'm not necessarily recommending it, although I'm telling you, you would derive great pleasure from this book. It's PG-13, but barely so. It's mostly, almost all PG. The setting, the presentation, and the words of this book are exquisite. So if you decide to give it a try, please listen to it on Audible, narrated by Nicholas Guy Smith, and listen to it at regular speed. This work of fiction follows the life of a count in Russia who was caught by the Bolsheviks, Bolsheviks while he was trying to get his mother out of the country in 1922. He was sentenced to life, not in prison, but in the formerly luxurious and still rather grand Hotel Metropole. So it's a really bizarre story, but it works. Uh, located in Moscow, across the square from the Kremlin, Count Alexander Rostov had been leftist leaning in his politics in earlier years, and therefore his life was spared, though many of the communists considered him a, a, a traitor to the cause. They wanted him executed, but instead of being executed, he was exiled to the hotel. Since he was confined, confined to the metropole, the count began to explore, as Tolls puts it, rooms behind rooms and doors behind doors in the hotel. Early in his exploration, Rostov discovered a storage room that combined a treasure trove of silver dinner settings and, and fabulous decorations that were, that were pulled out for the grand banquets. He was initially quite surprised that the Bolsheviks had not found these treasures and confiscated them for the people. But then he mused that perhaps there would be a time for banquets soon enough. The Count understood what is in the heart of us all. Men, women, boys and children. We long for a king. You may think, no, 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 no. Yes, we do. We all long for a king. Listen to what Amor Tolls says about the Count's thoughts. Quote, The soldiers of the common man may toss the banners of the old regime on the victory pyre. But soon enough, trumpets will blare. And pomp will take its place at the side of the throne, having once again secured its dominion over history and kings. So one day, the man of sorrows, who was lifted up on the cross, will return in glory, high and lifted up as the rightful and righteous heir to the throne over all creation. And we who have believed in him will be invited to a banquet and sing his praises and the songs of the redeemed. We will feast 
at a banquet that will feature sights and sounds and aromas and taste that we have never known before. And we will attend this banquet with hearts that overflow with joy and gratitude and praise for the one who died for us. Nevermore will we have the slightest fear or doubt or worry or sadness. Jesus will be the entire focus of our redeemed hearts and we will be glad. And the call for us today is for him to be the focus of our hearts in this moment. Until that day when Jesus' glory is seen so fully and clearly, his glory is most clearly seen at the cross, cross which is why we lift high in our hearts, in our conversations with one another, in our witness, we lift the cross high so that all who are bitten with the poison of sin, which is every one of us, can see and live. Salvation can be found in no other person besides Jesus. Nor can it be found in political ideals or political parties or in pleasure, temporal purposes. Certainly not. In self-achievement. If you have never acknowledged your sin before God. And then look to the cross of Jesus. Then may I encourage you. As Jesus encouraged Nicodemus. Look and live. The son of man will be lifted high. Look and live. Let's pray. Father, when we look horizontally, <laughs> we find pain and sorrow. We find pleasure and purpose and fulfillment. But it's all, all a mirage. We think, so many think today of Jesus as being a fairy tale. The fairy tale is all around us. The Son of Man was lifted up as a substitute, as a sacrifice to die in our place. And our hearts are drawn to Him. Dear Lord, keep our focus on Jesus. May the cross ever be before us. May we not live our lives just looking for the days where we will say it's all sun, sunshine ahead. Maybe it is. Maybe we get those, those times that, that, that present a beautiful picture of the full restoration of the kingdom of God on earth where the king rules and reigns. But Lord, it's not going to ever be that way fully until Jesus returns. But it can be fully. That the crucified and risen Christ can reign in our hearts. And as we preach Jesus and Him crucified, all men will be drawn to Jesus. 
We thank you for the cross. And give praise for the one who died for us and will reign forever as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.